Welcome to the sermon podcast from North Decatur United Methodist Church, where all are welcomed and included, connected with God and with one another, and sent out in service and invitation to the world. Each week we bring you the most recent sermon from me, Patrick Fallhaber, or from guest preachers. Thank you for listening and subscribing. When I was a kid, um, <laughs> I used to be terrified that I prayed wrong. I used to be so worried about it. I remember, I've mentioned this before in other services, but I, I remember like staying up at night trying to make sure that I had like Psalm 23 memorized um, because I thought otherwise God would be disappointed with me if I didn't have the Bible memorized. And I remember playing games in Sunday school where all the other kids were really good at memorizing scripture and I, I just wasn't, I'm not good at memorizing things. It's never been a gift of mine. Um, and I remember feeling like such a failure that I couldn't memorize all of the scripture that my friends did and couldn't recall it quickly when we were playing uh, games when I was growing up. I remember feeling so nervous about that. And I remember being up late at night even trying to like just constantly go through prayers like the sinner's prayer, right? Like um, I want to make sure that I'm saying it right because the last thing I want to do is to end up end up in hell if I said it wrong, right? I just remember that being so, like, so scary and so nerve-wracking and so um, hard. I remember just being really scared that I got the words wrong. So I would repeat over and over and over you know, something to the effect of, like, God, I'm a sinner and I'm sorry and I mess up all the time. Please help. Please fix me. And then, you know, I would think, okay, I think I did it right that time. And then I'd make a mistake again. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, I must have done the prayer wrong. Because it was supposed to, supposed to fix me. I'm not supposed to be a sinner anymore. And so then I'd say it again. And I'd worry because nothing seemed to be happening. Because the way that, and I don't think this was necessarily the um, pastor or the church's fault. What I absorbed growing up was that um, in order to feel safe in order to feel like God loved me, I needed to get the words right first. And I think there's a lot of Christianity that is sort of built on that idea, right? Like if you just, if you would just but say the words, um, then God would come to your aid. Uh, you know, whatever you ask of the of your heart, God will be there. And so like all these sort of scripture passages and lessons, like I took them so concretely that um, when I, you know, prayed to God for something and then nothing happened, I would feel like I was doing it wrong or that God wasn't listening. And, you know, that can really easily lead down the path where just faith is completely lost. But that's, I think that's because I, I don't want to blame the Enlightenment totally, but I, I want to blame it a little bit, that the idea that um, words and statements and um, well-articulated arguments are the way to demonstrate truth was something sort of handed down to me generationally. The idea of saying the right thing, especially in church, was sort of lifted up as a as a real marker of what it means to be Christian. And again, I don't 
I don't blame the pastor for that. I don't blame any Sunday school teachers. I don't, certainly don't blame my parents, um, for goodness sakes. Uh, if there were two people who demonstrated love more um, consistently, I don't know them. But uh, it just was what I took in from the church for some reason um, that I needed to say the right thing and then everything would be okay. And when things weren't okay, then it must mean that I didn't say the right thing. And I see that all the time, you know, when, you know, not during the pandemic, but when I was able to visit folks in the hospital, a lot of times it came back to that, like, I need to pray for the right thing, and then maybe healing will come. If I just promise this to God, then maybe God will be, will be there. If I, you know, it's like a deal, deal making um, with, with God. And in times of grief, I totally understand that, because part of the problem in the church, I think, is that we don't do a very good job of diving deep. We stay on the surface so often, and we stay in our heads so often. And again, I don't even know that that's the church's fault. I think that's just a product of living in a modern and postmodern and post-postmodern world. We think with our heads, and it's a lot harder to embody those thoughts internally. And especially when there's a discontinuity between what we're experiencing and what we're saying. It can be really hard to blend those two things together. And so I think the church, we have have a lot of work to do to take all of our ideas about faith, the idea that God loves all people, the idea that Christ is redeeming the world, the idea that the world is redeemable, The idea that I am redeemable, like those are all really beautifully stated value sets, but a lot of the times our actions don't demonstrate that, right? God so loved the world and yet we live with hatred for one another. Um, God loves me and yet I struggle to love me. God creates everything that exists in the world around us, and yet we keep building bigger and bigger and wider and wider and larger and larger things that need more and more and more and more and more. And then, you know, we live on the edge of a great extinction bugs and birds and so many other creatures that coral reefs dying around us all the time right like god so loved the world and yet we struggle to do that and oftentimes the church is at the forefront of saying like we don't need to worry about that right the church often has been at the front of the line saying you know all lives matter when the reality that needs to be stated is that black lives matter the church has been on the front of saying like you know, LGBTQ people aren't um, following in God's will, and yet God claims them as children, right? There's a lot of discontinuity between the idea of who God is as described to us in the Bible and then the way that we interact with one another based on what we read in the Bible. It's really confusing, and it's really no wonder why the church is struggling to maintain relevance or to um, be an active part of the community discourse in the world because we say a lot of things and then we do things that seem to counteract a lot of those beliefs and ideas. And y'all, that's been a problem for a long time and it will continue to be a problem, but it doesn't mean that we can't 
address it. And I think the best way for us to address that discontinuity between what we say and what we do, the discontinuity between what we believe and what we actively live out can be narrowed by looking at some of the lives of people who've been able to align their lives around their values. First and primary in my mind is this community that Paul was writing to in Thessalonica in the first century. You know, we've talked about this before, but if you're just catching up really briefly, Paul spent only three weeks with them before he was run out of town by a mob of people um, calling for him to be executed. So he spoke for three weeks, and then he left to travel down the coast of Greece and um, visit another community. And from that place, he sent a friend of his, a sort of mentee, back up to Thessalonica to check and see how they were doing. Because again, the assumption would be that within three weeks, there wouldn't be enough time for people to really devote themselves to a new way of life. And I think Paul kind of assumed that. So he sent his, um, his mentee, his friend, Timothy, up to sort of check on them and see how, th how they were doing. And when Timothy came back and reported on that city of Thessalonica back to Paul, he was raving about how beautifully they had been embodying their faith in Christ that it went you know, beyond words and affirmations, but because of their um, absolute devotion to a new way of life offered to them um, by Paul, but really through Christ, they were experiencing persecution, they were experiencing alienation, they were experiencing um, a lot that led to some significant suffering within the community. And so Paul writes them a really encouraging letter telling them one, how proud he is and how amazed he is that people are getting to know Christ and getting to understand what the kingdom of God is simply because they're alive. And that is, that's really key and we're gonna circle back to that. But Paul writes several really beautiful things about um, how they've been living out their lives and then he offers some really simple instruction to those same folks, really just helping them live more and more and more through uh, their values as, as new Christians. So, I said I wanted to circle, circle back to it. The, the people in Thessalonica, Paul was um, incredibly proud of them because they had been living their lives, living their lives in such a way that demonstrated that they believed in the resurrection of Christ. And that's such an important distinction, right? The Thessalonians, at least as far as scripture tells us, are not proclaiming their belief. They're not trying to convert people, they're not going out and preaching, they're not doing all this stuff. That's at least not written in scripture, maybe they were, but what Paul writes to them in the letter about is their commitment in their lives to live a radically different way than the rest of their city, the rest of their neighbors, the rest of their family members. They had devoted their lives to something different. They hadn't talked about how they wanted to devote their lives to something different. They hadn't, you know, preached about how other people should transform their lives. They just lived a transformed life. And it was so different than the culture around them that they were experiencing persecution. And that's so key, right? Like, so much of the idea of evangelism is about, like, 
in a flawed way, like don't hear me advocating for this, but so much of evangelism is about like telling people they need to get their life right so that God will accept them in the afterlife. When really the message from Paul and the message that the Thessalonians live out is that like we all need to orient our lives to step into the kingdom of God because it is being built now and God has created a space for every single one of us. We simply need to step our feet into the kingdom. And in order to do that, we need to embody the fruits of the spirit. We need to live, learn how to live with genuine love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. Those seven things, those seven fruits, if we can learn to live from those, uh, those values, those, that ethic, um, then the world around us will be transformed because it is radically different than the world around us. And, and that is what Paul is really trying to hammer home for these Thessalonian people. He doesn't tell them they need to do a better job of, you know, working on their rhetorical style or that they need to be better about talking about Jesus or anything like that. He says you need to live as though you are under the lordship of Christ even more fully. And he gives specific instruction to a specific community. And um, I want to read them again. Brittany already read them, but they're a little, they've been used poorly, which means that they read a little heavy. Uh, God's will is that you, that your lives are dedicated to him. Get it? Like, not just your thought processes, but your lives are dedicated to him. This means that you stay away from sexual immorality. We're going to talk about that, so hold on to that. Stay away from sexual immorality and learn how to control your own body in a pure and respectable way. Don't be controlled by your sexual urges like the Gentiles who don't know God. No one should mistreat or take advantage of their brother or sister in this issue. That last sentence provides context for the whole point. It, First Thessalonians and other passages out of Paul's letters have been used really poorly uh, to describe what sexual morality is. The church, nor Paul, is really interested in defining what that means. What it does mean for us if we're going to live from a value set oriented towards the kingdom of God, is that we cannot treat other people as things for our own pleasure. That is at the heart of what Paul is talking about as it relates to sexual immorality, because the, the Greek word there is pornea, the you know, uh, use of another person for our own erotic pleasure. That is bad. That's not the point of romantic relationship. That's not the point of covenant relationship. And the more often we treat one another as things, the more we start thinking of one another as things. And the more we start thinking about one another as things, the less we are able to see them as beloved children in the way that God sees them. So the best way to live from a kingdom mindset, the best way to live out the values associated with God and Christ is to stop doing anything that makes us think of any person as a thing. And extending from that, we should never think of any part of God's creation as a thing for our own pleasure. Instead, we should learn to live with one another through genuine, genuine pursuit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. 
And Paul is addressing a very specific issue in Thessalonica here and really helping them to understand what it means to live through a life oriented in love and a life oriented through self-control. Being able to live using both of those pieces of our faith life to say no person should be a thing for you. All people should be received as, should be celebrated as a beloved child of God because scripture and Christ both tell us that that is the fundamental truth. All of the world, every person within it, is a child created for a unique purpose within God's kingdom. And any time we rob another person of that value, we are stepping outside of the kingdom of God and participating in something counter to the work that God is doing. So Paul is reminding the people in Thessalonica that they have some work to continue to do. They're doing amazing. Their lives are oriented towards God. The community is starting to notice that they're living very differently than everyone else in the neighborhood. They are experiencing, they're, they're suffering at the hands of others, and yet they're maintaining their commitment to live in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. And it's bizarre to their community, but it's transforming the community at the same time. The thing that they have to work on now is to learn how to work through sexuality as a community in such a way that they can treat one another as beloved children through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. And so we, as people of faith living in the 21st century, have to ask the same questions. How have we used other people as things? And then we need to confess that, we need to repent of that, and we need to live further in to God's kingdom. So there's a lot of work for us to do. And it's going to take a lot of time because the fruits of the Spirit, as simple as they are to name, are incredibly difficult to live into. But that is the work that we are called to, all of us, every single one of us. As you all know, I am far from perfect here, um, so we we're, are we're, on this walk together, and I, I'm grateful for that. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon from North Decatur United Methodist Church. If you like this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at ndumc.org.